Okay, uh, welcome uh, once again to uh, another Throttle Up Radio Show and Podcast, and I'm your host, Captain Kevin Smith, and I am glad to be here, and I am with my audio engineer, my great audio engineer that's with us every week as we try to prepare the best show that we possibly can. Okay, a couple of administrative items uh, to get out of the way uh, right up front. Uh, We are a radio show on Red State Talk Radio, and we are also a podcast, and our podcast is available on all podcast platforms that we are aware of, and uh, that's great news for us, and it's great news for the uh, the listener, the, the consumer of uh, this and other uh, great podcasts as well. Okay, we are going to uh, be discussing, uh, which I think is one of the more fascinating aspects of everything that we cover here on Throttle Up Radio Show and Podcast, and that's uh, uh, we're about to kick off a new uh, special edition or new series uh, this week couple of administrative items. Do you want to talk about the, should I talk about the film documentary? Or just mention it or just say that I'll talk about it later? Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm talking, talking to my audio engineer who keeps me on track. This is a pre-announcement. Okay. It's not, no, it's a pre-announcement to the upcoming announcement <laughs> that we will be uh, discussing shortly, uh, we have a film documentary in the works. Actually, we do, and we are pretty excited about that. And uh, the announcement will be made shortly, uh, and we will be doing some uh, film screening as well uh, around the country. Probably start off in the southwest, but that's all to be determined, right? So we still have to make uh, arrangements and. And all kinds of uh, logistical and administrative things that have to go into something like that. But we actually did uh, we did review the uh, the film documentary uh, a couple of days ago, and it looks really good. And so we're going to be putting that out for public consumption soon. We're going to start off this show with a uh, actually we're we're beginning a new uh, series called Mission Critical and Tip of the Spear. That's the name of this show as well as this series that we're starting. So let me just say that again. Uh, the The whole idea here is what is mission critical and what does it mean to operate at the tip of the spear? All right, so we're going to start off the show with a question from my great audio engineer, and she's going to set the stage for this uh, discussion and commentary coming up. Here she is. Well, hello, Kevin, and uh, hello to your uh, listening audience. Okay. You were the commander of a forward-deployed combat unit embarked aboard the USS Constellation, a Kitty Hawk-class supercarrier. Can you explain how you got into this position? and what this means for national defense. Yes, absolutely. I will do that. Uh, I will try to um, explain certain things without getting too technical, uh, and I, that's kind of a challenge, but I, I'm going to try my best uh, to explain it in uh, more or less in layman's terms, um, I think. Uh, you know, I, I don't like this overly technical jargon stuff either. I would much rather use plain language and plain English and make it as understandable as possible. Okay, so yes, I was the commander of a forward-deployed combat unit, uh, that is uh, for sure, and we were embarked aboard the USS Constellation, which, as you mentioned, is a Kitty Hawk class supercarrier. Now, what? Let me explain a little bit up front. What what exactly does that mean? All right. So, uh, carrier warfare w- was per- perfected during World War II in the Pacific. A car- the aircraft carrier is a fighting unit uh, 
in the United States Navy was uh, was began begun. Is that is that the right word? Begun in or it began in 1922, and the uh, and the ship was called the USS Langley. Uh, it, it was actually a converted ship, but it did have a flight deck, right? And so that that began uh, uh, naval aviation, if you will, or carrier-based naval aviation is another term uh, that could be used. And then the uh, then the carriers became more sophisticated and became larger. And uh, during World War II, we actually built uh, quite a few what is called Essex-class carriers. Uh, they were straight deck, but some of them were converted to angle deck to handle the jet operations. We'll get into that later. And then it went through a couple of other classes, wound up uh, during my time with the Kitty Hawk-class supercarrier. These were large man-of-wars. They were large floating carriers. Uh, we could uh, carry uh, 5,000 uh, manned and about 100 airplanes. Uh, and so uh, that became uh, one of the uh, keys to national defense. Uh, and uh, now, now keep in mind that the United States is a maritime power. And so uh, it's important for us above everything else is to understand what that means on the global stage. Okay, what what exactly does that mean from the big picture or from the global or from the international, however you want to say it, uh, what does that mean? Uh, <clears throat> to be a maritime power means that you can control the seas, you can uh, protect the sea lanes, uh, which is what we did. Uh, we uh, began that process Actually, probably in the 1930s, I would say, Great White Fleet that Teddy Roosevelt sent out. Uh, what what time frame was that? Do you remember? Was that somewhere in the 20s? Could have been somewhere late 20s or early 30s. Uh, Teddy, I, I guess we could say if we had to put a, a name and a place and a date to it, I would say it's, it was the Great White Fleet uh, sent out uh, to circle the globe by uh, President Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, so that maybe that's the start of our position as a as a uh, world maritime power or a global maritime power. Nevertheless, we were and still are. Okay, uh, nothing can match us. We are, in fact, the preeminent maritime power on planet Earth. And we built up uh, an enormous fleet during World War II, and we per perfected uh, carrier aviation during that period of time. And when I say per perfected it, it I mean, it's the, the perfection is not over. It's still being worked on and established. It's, so you can say that it's a work in progress uh, more than anything else. Nevertheless, when I was in a position to become the commander of a forward-deployed combat unit, uh, the USS Constellation was available, and that's the uh, aircraft carrier that that I uh, deployed on or embarked aboard uh, as the commander of uh, my particular uh, unit, or uh, sometimes it's referred to as a squadron. In the giant scheme of things, it basically means the same thing. And so, yes, I was the commander of a forward-deployed combat unit, and I was embarked aboard the USS Constellation. And could I explain how I got into this position and what this means for national defense? I would certainly uh, do my very best to explain it and to, uh, to uh, clarify it in terms of how important it was. Okay, as, as a general rule, and this is something to remember, and, and as we go forward, uh, this is kind of something that you want to keep in the back of your minds. If, if you're looking at what, what does it mean 
to be a, a member of the United States military. What, what exactly does that mean? Every position is important. Every position is vital. Uh, there are no trivial positions in the Department of Defense uh, as a uh, military, uh, as a member of the military. There's no trivial positions. Every single position is important. There are, in fact, some leading positions that are that are vital uh, that we would consider to be enormously critical. We would consider them to be mission critical positions, and one of them, and the, in my view, the most important and the most mission critical position there is in the United States military is to be the commander of a forward-deployed combat unit embarked aboard an aircraft carrier. And that basically means that you can go any place in the world, all right, any place, because we have lots of oceans. The planet Earth is covered by, what is it, about 75% ocean? Is that right? It's about right. Yeah, about so three quarters of the surface of the planet is uh, is water, salt water, sea water, if you will, and so we pretty much can go anywhere as an air, as a carrier task force. Uh, we have global reach. We've been doing this for a very long period of time, and we still do it. We are still continuing to do it. I think we have. Uh, somewhere in the vicinity of 11 or 12 carriers uh, on active duty. It might even be more. I, I don't know. It, you know, it fluctuates from from time to time. Uh, I'm not really certain. Uh, during my time, we had 12 uh, active carriers uh, in the active duty fleet, 12 carriers, and a couple in reserve. But uh, it, I think it varies from 12 to 15 is is my my idea uh not not uh i'm not exactly sure but uh, that's pretty close okay so i was embarked aboard the uss constellation and what we were doing was operating at the tip of the spear now what exactly does that mean tip of the spear means that means that if if the if uh if our enemy uh in intends to do us harm or another way of saying that is that if our enemy uh, intends to engage us in a military operation uh, they have to defeat us all of us that occupy the tip of the spear okay so we are the first line of defense uh, we are the outer perimeter, and it could be anywhere. Uh, we wander, wander. I mean, we sail all over the the planet. Uh, I was in the uh, Pacific theater of operation and went all over the Pacific, which is a pretty big ocean, by the way. I think the Pacific Ocean is our biggest on planet Earth, uh, and we were all over that place. Uh, in my uh, time in my deployment aboard uh, the USS Constellation. How did I get in that position? Okay, that's the next follow-on question. And the, I guess, uh, you know, I mean, I guess you could say right place at the right time. Um, I guess you could say it had to do with expertise, uh, positioning, um, and all of that stuff, other things, uh, willingness, um, enthusiasm, um, skill base. Uh, you could, you know, you could say, well, sort of like all of the above. Sure, uh, that's that's true. Uh, you had to be selected for it, of course. It's not a self-assignment. You had to be selected for this position. And it had to uh, prove your way. Prove that you could do it along the way um, because it is rather tra challenging and all of the above. I, I think probably in terms of preparation, 
looking back on it, I would say that I began preparing for this position as soon as I entered uh, military service. Okay, probably that's true. All right, when I uh, when I came out of college and went right into the military, I went into the United States Navy uh, and uh, entered there. Uh, their uh, Naval Aviator Flight Training Program, which also included uh, Aviation Officer Candidate Training. So I went first through Officer Candidate School. Uh, that was, I think that was three months, wasn't it? Wasn't it about, about three months, right? Yeah, I think it was a three-month school. It, wasn't it wasn't it portrayed in in a movie that we saw officer and a gentleman wasn't it yeah yeah so if you want to know what that what that's like you can see the movie officer and a gentleman and that's pretty much what it was like uh you know with some or certainly some hollywood movie stuff there but i saw it a number of times i'd say it was pretty accurate having been there done that of course uh, so that gives you an idea of what aviation officer candidate school is like and was like for me as well. And then after that, uh, then uh, then I moved into uh, went right into um, uh, the uh, Naval Air Academy, which uh, trains us to be a naval aviator. Uh, we were we were classified officially as student naval aviators uh, and we went through this uh, program that was uh, somewhere between um, uh, three quarters uh, a year and three quarters or we're, we're going to say generally speaking we're talking about uh, the time frame r runs from 18 months to two years depending on aircraft availability and weather and other things that have to do with aviation you can't i mean you cannot pin it down specifically because we're dealing with out outside a lot of it is outside training and all, a lot of it is affected by the weather and so you, it doesn't have a hard completion date it has a uh, a general target it's somewhere between 18 months and uh, I'd be sorry, 18, yeah, 18 months and 24 months uh, long. Uh, it took me somewhere in the vicinity of, I think it took me about 19 or 20 months. Uh, I would say it took my class about 19 or 20 months to finish. Uh, we were pretty close to the two-year mark by the time we uh, came back from uh, survival training. So right after flight training, we went into survival training, uh, and that took um, that lasted probably total of about a month. Uh, then we did other preparation training after that, uh, and then we went into uh, weapon systems training. So, so we'll go from one training to another training to another training and by the time I got finished with weapon systems training in the F-8 Crusader uh, we're looking at something over two years probably between two and two and a half years by the time I entered and then I finished weapon system training and then go go into the squadron after that all right so it takes a long time all right it takes a long time to create a naval aviator that's that's absolutely for sure and a lot of money all right, we're talking about the cost is enormous uh, to train uh, someone to do that from the ground up. Enormously expensive. Okay, so um, we're going to do a Q&A. Uh, this is about um, probably uh, this is uh, we're going to extract this from a, from a YouTube video. All right, and, and this happens to be a YouTube uh, video that can be found on our YouTube channel uh, of our uh, of our sister station, if you will, or sister channel. It's called the Sonic Warrior, right? So that's our sister channel to uh, Throttle Up and the Throttle Up YouTube channel. Uh, 
is the Sonic Warrior, and so you can go there and you can find it. And this is the YouTube. It's actually, a, this is called an interview with Top Gun pilot Captain Kevin Smith, U.S. Navy. Okay, uh, we're going to play uh, the uh, first, oh, about 15-minute portion of this um, uh, this YouTube as as an audio, and and the reason why we're doing that is because this is this is new. This is a a, a new uh, production uh, that we just uh, posted on our YouTube channel, so it's basically it's brand new, all right. And it's got some really good features to it. It is up to date. I happen to like it a lot. And it be, it helps us with this discussion because it's a great Q and A, and after that, then we'll uh, chat about it a little bit more. But this is a great Q and A uh, to get us up to speed on uh, what is it like to operate at the tip of the spear. Uh, what exactly is that, and why is that important for all of us to understand that? Okay, so here we go. Maybe this would be an interesting to start with. How do you, what does it mean when you're a captain? Uh, that's a senior officer rank. Uh, it's uh, uh, in the officer community, it's referred to as an 06, right, which is six up, right? They go from one. Okay. Oh, one up, all the way up to whatever a four star. Admiral or general is I forget what that is, but but you know six is uh, is a captain in the Navy or a colonel in the uh, Army, Marines, and Air Force. Uh, Coast Guard has the same ranks as the Navy. Okay, okay. so Navy or Coast Guard. All right, so captain is is um, is the rank. Uh, Does that have anything to do with with being a pilot though, or no, or is that something? No, totally that's different? naval. All right, that's okay. that's that goes way way back in uh, you know in uh, naval history, uh, captain of a ship, right? Okay. Um, and, um, and so, when you're the captain of the ship, you're in charge of the ship. In my case, I was a squadron commander. Uh, it also is referred to as um, commanding officer. Uh, the British call it squadron leader. Uh, nevertheless, you're in charge of the squadron. Um, in this case, it was a it was a fighter squadron, uh, and we were deployed upon uh, on. Uh, uh, to be correct, it's you deploy in a man of war, but that's Navy speak, right? Okay. Uh, so I was, we deployed in the USS Constellation, which was a man of war. Okay. Uh, what does that help me out? What does that mean when you say man of war? Because uh, I don't even know. <laughs> it, it's a capital combat ship. Okay. That's what it is, right? That leads your, that leads all of your forces. Okay. Right? Your naval forces, marines, whatever is afloat. That's the capital combat ship. Usually a flagship as well. Okay. Okay. Right. Uh, it's all military speak. Nevertheless, it's important to have a little bit of understanding of that because, because that's the tip of the spear and that's what protects us as a country, right? If you have, if you have a, uh, uh, a perimeter of protection, who is at the leading edge of that perimeter? Who is at the leading edge of that circle? The leading edge of that circle are the frontline warriors uh, if, of any nation in our, in our uh, wonderful country that we have, the United States, we have uh, some of the best people that I have ever met. They are the frontline warriors. And many of them uh, became uh, commanders of uh, four deployed combat units, and that's the ultimate military assignment with the highest level of responsibility that you can imagine. 
and so we all take that pretty seriously uh, to uh, rise to that position and get selected for that position is in fact an honor uh, when I got to that position I was very very honored and also I was humbled because <clears throat> somehow uh, they thought that I was um, capable of taking on that level of responsibility and we were forward deployed on an aircraft carrier uh, that is the ultimate assi assignment in my in my world uh, it's not the only great assignment but for me as a naval aviator and a Navy fighter pilot uh, that was the ultimate assignment for me um, and um, I tried to meet that challenge the best way that I could possibly do. I worked 18-hour days on a regular basis, uh, and um, we had a very, very long build-up period. Uh, we had a long deployment. The, the deployment that we had on, and this was very, very unusual, by the way, because we were in a, a very, very um, high-stress time in this country. Uh, but the, my deployment on the USS Constellation was 11 months long. Right? You 11, 11 months. months aircraft carrier. Yeah, 11 months. Right, and that is that is way beyond what humans can do. All right, but we had to do it. Okay, that was essential. We, were, in fact, we were at one time we were the only task force in the Pacific, and the Pacific was heating up big time, and we were the only task force in the Pacific, and. And, and the nation's eyes were on us. Uh, you probably don't remember this, but it was. And You're talking about the, 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 we're talking the 1970s. Yeah, this was, this was, uh, uh, this was post-Vietnam. Okay. All right, and, and, and the Navy was, was uh, challenged to rebuild their forces. All right, it was a huge challenge. Simultaneously with that, the Navy was preparing and did, in fact, deploy the F-14 Tomcat, which was a next-generation fighter that took fighter uh, technology way, way out into the future. And we were the second aircraft carrier to deploy with brand new right out of the factory F-14s. We were the first carrier to do that. And because of that, and because of the attention that was being paid to the air wing that I was in, which was called Air Wing 9, they hand-selected the air wing commander. They brought in a, a very, very special person. He was, uh, uh, at that time, he was uh, a Navy captain, Captain Tony Les. He has since went on to make Vice Admiral. Uh, and retired as a vice admiral. And he probably was the finest, most respected naval aviator currently on active duty. And they brought him in to lead the air wing because it was so important what we were doing. Right? <clears throat> and then uh, I was in an F-8 unit and our primary job was tactical reconnaissance because I was flying the reconnaissance version of the F-8 Crusader. Uh, and that version of the F.A. Crusader happened to be a very, very high-performance airplane. It was a little bit better than the fighter version because it had some features to it, had some improved aerodynamics to it, and it had um, uh, a little bit cleaner and, and, um, and, and it was actually faster. Right? So it was the fastest airplane uh, in terms of acceleration rates. It was the fastest airplane that that we had in the air wing and probably the fastest airplane ever in terms of its ability to accelerate. Which, which one? The F-A Crusader. The F-A Crusader, right. this right here, this fastest right. airplane. Fastest airplane in terms of acceleration. Okay, so Fastest I, accelerating can, airplane that we ever had. Can you put that in some sort of term that yeah, I Yeah, we could accelerate 50 knots a second. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Imagine that. Yeah, that, I, all the way out to well, Mach 1, all the way out to supersonic. We could accelerate 50 knots a second. That means you could be supersonic in, in, I mean, in a few seconds, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had this maneuver. We, you know, uh, we call it the 
uh, it was a, you know, it was a ready five and, you know, launch maneuver off the carrier to intercept the, the bombers, uh, the enemy bombers. And this is, we actually did this, by the way. This wasn't fake. These are real enemy bombers coming in. And we would launch off the carrier. And in three minutes, from carrier launch to intercept at supersonic at Mach 1, we could do that in three minutes. Wow. From the deck, 35,000 feet, Mach 1, in three minutes. Incredible. That's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, you know. Well, it's it's and, and it's, so so my, so wh what I'm doing here, all right, in this wonderful studio with these wonderful people. What I'm doing here is I'm here to talk about my book, The Sonic Warrior: Chronicles of a Top Gun Pioneer. And there's a couple of important reasons why, and we talked about this before, right? When all is said and done, we are not just talking about the technology and the wonderful airplanes that we produce as a country, and they're wonderful, they're marvelous and stuff, but we're also talking about the human, the human operator, the human side of this story. Sometimes maybe that gets underplayed, you know perhaps even a little bit underrated, although I do think that some of the museums now are recognizing that and paying a little bit more attention to the human that actually could operate these airplanes successfully. These are very, very high-performance airplanes. Remember now that this is the analog era. Okay, There was no GPS systems. There's no satellites. There was nothing. Zero. Nothing. All right, there's a heading, a compass. We had a compass, that's about it, All right? And we had to find a carrier with a compass. I don't know how you do that, <laughs> but we had to do that. And so the human side of it is really a fascinating story. And so that's why, that's why we, are, uh, we are, you know, producing this, uh, this book audio book. We just did the audio recording of this book. That'll be out soon. And um, in this film, we're doing a film documentary, you and I are, and, and we're doing this trailer because uh, we need to also have some of this stuff on video to explain what exactly are we trying to do. Is this just another uh, book about uh, aviation history? Not that any of them are bad. They're all great. I'm not, I'm not criticizing anything in, in any attempt to, to add clarity to what has occurred. Uh, we are taking a little bit different tact here and a little bit different strategy, and that is we're focusing on the human side of this uh, era. Now, now, keep in mind, and this is really important to understand, Robert, keep in mind that we were faced with three mission-critical problems simultaneously, okay? which were, how do you operate these very, very high-speed airplanes successfully? When we're talking about high-speed, we're talking about well beyond the speed of sound. Right? These airplanes could go well, well beyond the speed of sound in their top-end speeds. How do you operate these airplanes successfully? when we've never been there before. We've never done that before. We've never gone to that level of speed where we were beyond the speed of sound. We used to think of the speed of sound as a sound barrier. That's right. as fast as, as airplanes could go because of various aerodynamic limitations. We overcame those limitations and then we were able to quite easily go beyond the speed of sound. But that brought all kinds of issues to the surface and problems we had to solve. Keep in mind that this has never been done before. Humans had never operated in that area, in that dimension. And then we had to operate these airplanes, these very, very high-speed airplanes, high-performance airplanes. We had to figure out a way 
to actually successfully operate them in a carrier environment. How do you launch and recover high-performance airplanes in a carrier environment? And that is something that was never done before. Okay, so we had to figure that out. We did, okay, we mm -hmm. did, we did. That's amazing people that came to the, came to uh, that problem and, uh, and uh, didn't shy away from this challenge. Amazing people. I have some of them, listed some of them in my book. I don't have all of them. Um, I don't remember every single one at this stage in my life, but I did the best I could to acknowledge every one of those people that contributed to this, uh, to this success. So we have very, very high speeds, carrier environment, and then we also have how do you conduct aerial combat? How do you fight? All right. How do you conduct aerial combat at these very high speeds and high Gs? How do you do that? All right. And that was a whole new set of problems that we had to deal with and we had to overcome. And, and part, of the, part of that story um, embraces the, the Top Gun initiative. Um, and all of these people deserve an enormous amount of credit. Uh, what was not clear from, you know, from the various movies and treatments uh, that have uh, arisen because of the Top Gun, what was not clear was that all of this was grassroots, right? It didn't come from the top, it came from the bottom up, right? So this was a wonderful example of intellectual courage. You know, uh, the warriors got together and and uh, came up with a solution. So the, this was a warrior-generated solution. So when you think of Top Gun, you think of fighter pilots, you think of other people that have contributed to this initiative, um, um, and there's lots and lots of them. I've mentioned in my book as well. Um, you know, all of these were were. Um, people that were not going to take uh, no for an answer and and were uh, bound and determined to um, find a solution and to make turn this into a uh, a, a, com a a weapon system that was extremely effective at the leading edge of the battle space which was these high performance fighter aircraft that can operate at enormous speeds, far beyond the speed of sound, and think about the energy that you have when you do that, as well as be a being able to think and solve problems when you're pulling four, five, and six Gs. How do you do that, right? Now, humans have been, been able, we have figured that out. I was. You know, I was, I suppose, lucky, maybe, uh, possibly right place at the right time. I don't actually know. Um, but I, I, I figured that out as well and, and uh, got some help along the way, of course. Uh, some of the stuff had never been done before. All right, so it was all brand new, all brand new. Okay, so that is uh, at least part of this um, uh, video. Uh, the, the auto audio portion of it and um, you can uh, uh, you can get it on the on the YouTube channel um, and I think it's posted on our uh, sister website uh, I, I did want to do one other thing because my uh, great audio engineer mentioned uh, also something else which uh, which uh, she said, what does this mean for national defense? And, and I, I kind of alluded to that a little earlier, if you remember. Uh, but I, I wanted to, to close up this uh, show with a, a little bit more discussion in the area of uh, national defense. And, uh, and what, what does that mean? All right. So we were, um, we were operating at the tip of the spear. We were on a man of war, 
we were on a, um, a member of the Carrier Task Force. In my particular case, it was Carrier Task Force 77, uh, which is in the operational chain of command. By the way, the operational chain of command in the Navy is very, very small. Um, short, if <laughs> another way of saying that is short. There's not a lot of layers operationally. There is a lot of layers and a big bureaucracy, of course, but operationally, uh, the Navy is pretty well streamlined uh, across the board. Uh, there's only, I think, four layers uh, to go through to get to the president. Uh, it might might even be less than that. I, I haven't actually counted them, but I think probably something like that. It's, it's pretty direct, All right? Uh, you can make you can get uh, a clear. You can get clear information up to the uh, command authority within a matter of minutes, um, you know, after, uh, after an attack. Uh, national defense. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point out that what we were doing was enormously important. And the reason for that is, uh, uh, I guess you could say it's, it's many and varied, but primarily it's because, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, the United States of America is a maritime power. No question about it. We have a large, effective, and lethal Navy. Uh, our naval forces are, uh, are the best in the world. I would say that they're the best that the world has ever seen, for sure. Uh, naval aviation is, uh, is basically is the best there is. There are other countries that, uh, that do actually have some uh, naval aviation in a former fashion, but it's very limited and it's very small. There's only a handful of countries that that, that have uh, have uh, that conduct aviation from a naval platform or from a carrier-centric environment. Uh, however you want to say that, uh, but we are the biggest and we are the best and we have been the biggest and the best since World War II, and there's no question about it. Now, we were challenged in World War II. That, that is for, sh- for sure, for certain, uh, but we, and we, did, we were up against a, a major naval power. That, that is for sure, for certain. But uh, we came through that, uh, that uh, episode, that challenge, if you will, enormous challenge, uh, primarily because they're really good people. Now, when you when you think about uh, things like uh, supersonic airplanes and aircraft carriers and all that stuff, you're, you're kind of you're kind of looking at the hardware, right? It's it's a little bit simple, if you will, or it's an overly simplistic view of what is actually going on. What what I want you to do, and I often say this. Um, when I am talking to people or when I'm leading people on, uh, uh, on visits to aircraft carrier museums. I want you to go to the flight deck of, a, of an aircraft carrier museum. Just walk up to the flight deck, and when you get to the flight deck, I want you to stop. Just stop. Don't move. And I want you to look around. Look around the flight deck. Just look at everything that, just take it all in. Okay, now most of what you see is going to be, uh, going to be military equipment in the form of airplanes capable of operating from the deck of an aircraft carrier. Okay, fine, because right, you're going to see a lot of that. Uh, you're also going to see some visitors in the in the form of humans, right? So you're going to see some human beings. Okay, so you have equipment, you have airplanes, and you have also aircraft handling equipment, and you have aircraft fueling equipment, and you have uh, aircraft ordnance equipment, and all of that stuff. Sure. Okay, hardware. <laughs> you have hardware. And then you have, uh, then you have uh, people, human beings on the flight deck. And I want you to imagine everything is moving. 
It is not stationary. Every single thing that you see is actually moving, including the people. And the people, ha all the people on the flight deck have assigned duties, and they wear different colored jerseys. Okay, they, they 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 wear different colors, if you will. And they're all moving, and they all have jobs. They all have duties, and they're all working together. Now that's the key to mission success. Okay, and we can also say that that is mission critical which is what? They are all working together. That's what I'm saying. That is the most important thing to take, take away from any experience that you may have in visiting an aircraft carrier museum. Now, that ought to be the microcosm of everything that we do as humans, which is working together. Okay. On a flight deck, it ain't going to happen. It's not going to work at all. It will, it will degenerate into chaos, confusion, and catastrophe unless we all work together. And that's not any kind of a wishy-washy thing. That is a hardcore reality. That is hardcore. And it is wired into our brains as people who operate in a carrier environment, like I have done, and like many of my colleagues have done, that is hardwired into our brain. I can't even imagine why that lesson has not been hardwired into the brain of every single American. I can't even imagine that. If it works on a flight deck, it's going to work anywhere. Isn't that the way we should have it? Isn't that the way we should be organizing ourselves? Isn't that the way in which we should be expecting it to be and expecting others to work that way as well? Okay. Expectation. Sure. Okay. <clears throat> Now, why are we there? We're there for national defense. We are the strongest maritime power in the world. Okay? Why do we need to be the strongest maritime power? We are the strongest maritime power in the world for two reasons. Number one is that we do not represent tyranny or authoritarianism. We are a republic. We are a constitutional republic, which means people don't hold sway. The Constitution holds sway, and the Constitution is the final authority, not people in power or uh, people that, have, that want to um, assume kingship. Uh, the king is not is not the ultimate authority in our system. The Constitution is the ultimate authority in our system. We are a constitutional republic, and we have the strongest maritime force in the world. We also have the strongest maritime force that has ever existed on planet Earth. I was actually a member of that, and we took national defense very seriously. What were we doing? We were actually doing two things. One is we were preventing the invasion of the United States of America. We were preventing our country from being invaded. Two, we were keeping the sea lines open for commerce. Okay. And why... Was that important? That that uh, uh, let's say that goal, that that uh, that responsibility of the United States of America was reaffirmed by um, President uh, uh, Jefferson uh, when he uh, uh, defeated the uh, pirates in the Mediterranean, uh, and what was the name of that battle? 
Tripoli, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was Tripoli, right? Shores of Tripoli, and that, that is part of the Marine song, by the way, the U.S. Marine Corps, right? Shores of Tripoli, yeah. So so uh, President Jefferson sent the Marines in by ship, by the way, uh, to defeat uh, the pirates who were uh, capturing our trade vessels and demanding ransom, uh, and the guys... <laughs> I mean, this is an amazing part of U.S. history. Uh, me, for me, uh, you know, being a naval officer, I'm, I'm, I'm just amazed. Uh, you know, he was I'm getting the two-minute warning from my great audio engineer. Jefferson was, uh, he was basically said, no, we're not going to pay ransom. We're going to defeat these people, and we have the power to do it. We're going to use our power and we're going to become a maritime power, and we're going to keep the sea lanes open for trade and prosperity and commerce. And that's exactly what he did. And that's exactly what we're doing now. Okay. Our national defense also provides us with open sea lanes so that we can conduct global trade and commerce for mutual prosperity. That's what we're doing out there and that's essentially what national defense means it also means that no they're not going to invade the united states of america because they have to go by us first and we can say that you can you if you think you can invade us you have to do it over my dead body and and we were we were willing to put our life and we did put our lives on the line i did many times i came close um to the uh, final full measure of devotion, um, I think uh, in my career it's about between six and eight times. Came really close, uh, but uh, they would have to go by us and through us in order to invade the United States, and they didn't, and they can't, and there's no power on Earth right now that can do so. Okay, uh, we're about ready to um, wrap up another radio show and podcast, right? How many how many microseconds do do I have here uh, before the music starts? All right, another Throttle Up Radio Show and podcast. Thank you for listening. We will see you all next week. <laughs>